and clear of the closing doors, please. What up, son? What up? Louis Max Grind to pivot this afternoon. I am honored, a pleasure here to introduce to you, if you grew up in New York City between the 70s and the 90s, you knew about 42nd Street and what went on in Midtown in that area. Today, we have the director of showworldlegacy.com the original peep man 1605 himself is here in the house ready to talk to us and tell us everything about what's going on with show world legacy and we're going to get into some of the behind the scenes things that went down and i myself have some stories so welcome Pete man 1605 how you doing brother hello Louis. thank you very much for inviting me here your show. Great pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So uh, I grew up in New York, in Queens, and uh, I frequented the city quite a bit growing up. Uh, I think you were there really in the early 80s, correct? Well, you know, the first time I went to um, what we referred to later on as the Deuce, it was 42nd Street. You know, you cut school. Um, you cut school to go to the movies. It was my friend's idea. I was worried uh, because at the time when I was in high school, they had what were called truant officers. Absolutely, of course. And they would send them out uh, to try to uh, track you down. But the thing, what we heard on the street was the truant officers were afraid to go to 42nd Street. I go, aha, let's do this. You know, and that was my first introduction back in 1975. Okay, and so then I never knew that later on I would return there to work. Absolutely. So, okay. So hang on. So let's, so how did it all start that you got involved? Where, where are you originally from? Uh, can we talk about where you're originally from? And I was and how born in Manhattan. Okay. I spent my childhood, very precious childhood in Connecticut, actually. What part? In um, a very small town called Bethlehem, Connecticut. A okay. beautiful town where my mom actually grew up. I came back here to go to school. Um, in the city to go to the high school of art and design. Okay. And that was around when I was 14 years old, you know, and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. That, that to me, um, my arrival back in New York at, at that time, um, it was just uh, the most incredible experience. So this is mid-70s? Yes. This is mid-70s? Yeah, mid-70s. What, what year did you graduate high school? I graduated in 1979. Okay, so I graduated in 77. So we're around mm-hmm. the same, same mm-hmm. time. Gotcha, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about it is, is that um, I guess it goes back to when I was uh, uh, younger, you know, considerably younger, and I had swiped my first copy of Playboy. <laughs> I didn't have the $1 to pay for it. So it was a really bold move. And when I look back at that, it was something that had to be done. It's because what was encased in Playboy, the centerfold, was everything at that point. You know, there wasn't anything else. And then, of course, 
I had seen a film uh, where Raquel, Raquel Welch was, you know, scantily clad, you know, uh, running around, whatever. She was almost naked, but that was just enough for me. So there was always something that there was a fascination, of course. And, and I, I was like, how come there aren't any women around here that look like that? You know? So I was always seeking that. And, and a lot of that has to do with, with the attraction to Times Square because it, it, was, it was considered a forbidden place, but it, it offered attractions you couldn't find anywhere else. And especially when it came to the women, um, I don't know, I found it very appealing that there were these women that would offer themselves, you know? Available. It was something that was just, it had to be resolved one way or another. And even when I still lived, even before I was like 13 years old, I had taken the bus from Connecticut, you know, to the Port Authority. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One time I did it in the middle of a blizzard and I went to a porno theater on 8th Avenue. It was probably uh, the Capri or some place like that, you know, because I'd seen a, a very small ad in the New York Times and, and for, for a porno film. So, you know, that little ad everything was everything to me. I, I had to investigate this, you know. <laughs> I remember being that there was a blizzard and there were mounds of snow everywhere. I had, you know, layers on, scarves, hats. So I went through the turnstile easily. I thought, this is great. And then when I get in there and I saw what was on the screen, it was all blurry. Um, the sound was all muffled. There, it was the worst thing I ever saw in my life, you know. But it was I said, the best. This can't be what but it, it was is. the best. But it was the best. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know. So at least I was. I was almost there, looking for what I was seeking. Right. You know? Yeah. Because I remember uh, back in the day, you know, we getting the Village Voice, and the Village Voice was chock full in the back, chock <laughs> full of all the ads, and that's really where you were able to really figure out, you know, what what was going on. So you got to, so you came into the city, you got to high school, you started going, uh, did you start going to the area regularly? No, well, the thing about it is, because my dad was an educator, you know, I really wanted to, but I had, I was filled, I was riddled with this like ambivalence. And there was something, I just couldn't get it out of me that attracted me. I wanted to be where the action was, first of all. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want, you know, I, I wanted to have experiences. I just couldn't see going from high school to college and not having the experiences I wanted. And, and let's be honest, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say a lot of those were, were sexual. It was sexual, you know, yeah, it's fine. that awareness. Of course, of course, and and, of and if, if anything, I figured, you know what? I just wanted to put this whole thing of um, academia or whatever it is. Furthering myself, I wanted to put it on hold. I really wanted to work in a porno theater or something like that. I would have taken anything. I would have taken a regular arcade just as long as it was in the center of our of Times Square. You know, like the gritty Peatland Arcade, the one that was like near 48th Street where the music stores were. You could exactly. go in from 7th Avenue and come out the other end on Broadway. It was yeah, exactly. beautiful. Exactly. I, you know, I would have taken a that. job there in a, in a second. It's right? funny you say that. In, uh I believe it was 79 or 80. I uh, took piano lessons on 7th Avenue across the street from the Metropole. Oh, my God. The, the Metropole, which was originally a jazz club. Exactly. So, I took, yeah. uh, you know, so we were there. And that was yeah. right down 48th Street World. Sam Ash, Manny's, everything was there. Yeah. So, yeah, that was. Uh, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
were, let, let me ask a question. Were, were you, were you into smoking pot at that time? Any drugs by that time or not? When, um, I knew we were going to get around to this. Okay. <laughs> um, obviously, because I went to a lot of rock concerts at mm-hmm. school. You know, obviously I was, I was smoking and um, it was a big deal. Um, when I went to work in the peep shows, I realized I could um, put it this way. Sometimes, it, you know, the squalor aspect was a little mm-hmm. overwhelming. Right. So, you know, when I would smoke a joint, I could handle it a little bit better. Yeah, cut the edge. You know what I mean? Where, where it, wasn't, it wasn't as disturbing, you know? However, when a customer would take a crap in the booth, forget about it. I mean, you know, and usually an executive. I don't know why, you know? But the guy was, he was, he was uh, inhaling nitrous oxide, those whippet things. Sure. So I figured, you know, so he had an, uh, an act of uh, incontinence. Right. <laughs> so you, so you went, you were going to school. When did you, when did you actually figure that you say, I'm going to start working? Like how to take us through the. Uh, I didn't through. get accepted to, to the college. I don't think it had anything really to do with my, uh, my work. I didn't get accepted to the school that my dad went to, which was Cooper Union. Okay. And I really tough, felt, tough to get into, though. Tough to get into. Yes, it was very tough. He, he got is. in there Still because is. he integrated to this country, and he was a real. Um, he deserved to get in there. Where in my case, um, I really wanted partially to please him, but when when I was rejected, I took it in a way where I need to just go away for a while. So okay. I, even more than that, I just figured, well, I'm going to get uh, fine. I, some, somehow I felt I was going to go out there and I was going to uh, forge my way to a path to a very, let's call it, unconventional education. And I knew that that was my destination no matter what Times Square. Fair enough. Okay, I just so- didn't know how. I went to Show World several times mm-hmm. and um, tried to get a job as a cashier. So to take us to that, take us through that, the, how you actually said, I'm going, uh, the interview process, who you – who you spoke to? Did you just show up and said, I'm looking for a job? Well, you know, I was wearing my Chinese jacket, which is called a Minop, because my dad is Asian. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, and my hair was very long, of course, because I'm a rocker. So, of course. Maybe I wasn't dressed appropriately. I don't know what the reason was. I, I didn't get the job then. The fellow, you know, when you would enter Show World, then you go through the video arcade, all the way to the back is like a desk. It's called the stick. And the fellow working the desk, his name was Fat Jimmy. And he was uh, an Italian, an Italian guy from Harlem with with, with pockmarked skin. His skin looked like it, it you know, looked like machine gun holes, right. looked like bullet holes in his, right. in his skin. But you know, so I pleaded to uh, get a job uh, as a silver dollar man, hopefully on the second floor show where the girls were. Right? You know, the motivation behind going to the peep shows in the back of my mind, it was it was always well. Hopefully, I'm going to meet the girl of my dreams. Really, I really, really believe. When that. did you? When did you? When did you realize that? Later on, or was that something that you were always? It was something gonna, I didn't want to admit. Score. You don't really go there when you're applying for the job. And tell them that. You just tell them you're looking for work. You don't tell them, "Well, I, I'm here to get laid." I, I really don't think you can't really start that way. But what I what I did was, I didn't give up. But then later on, I went to another one of Richie's. Well, actually, it was half owned by Richie and half owned by his partner. Uh, it was called the Pussycat on Broadway. Right. Now, Richie is huge. Richie Basciano, right? Richard Basciano is owner right. of Show World. Correct. And the Pussycat was owned by uh, another um, 
DiBernardo, not DiBernardo. No, he had a piece of uh, he had a piece of that, but it was owned by Mickey Zafferano. That's it. Gotcha. Mickey Zafferano. Right. So I went there, and as luck would have it, my friend Mark, he hired me right away. I mean, I said I'm looking for work, any kind of work. I don't care what kind of work. You know, it, it's strange, but I'm telling you this story, and we always evoke Travis Bickle somehow. You know, <laughs> I work, I work days, I work nights, I work I doubles, know. I work triples. I don't care. I work weekends, I work holidays. I just wanted to work badly. I didn't even have to make. He just go. He just looked at me, and he had these like really thick, like Barney Google type eyeglasses. He said, "All right, um, I'll hire you as a cashier." He goes. And then he told me to report to another deep emporium on 7th Avenue called 7-Eleven. called 7-Eleven Show Files. I, I was shocked. You know, I couldn't believe it. I wanted to be where the action was. And all of a sudden, this was it. You're in it. It didn't You're matter getting applied to college. It, it was, you know, that didn't matter at all. Right. You know? um, and that night, uh, the following night, I went to work there as a cashier. And you were still, so were you commuting from Connecticut back? No, no, no. I, I lived in the Bronx at this time. Oh, the, the Bronx. Okay, so you were yeah. commuting from the Bronx, so that was no big deal. Yeah. That was no big deal. No, wait a second. I'm sorry. At this time, I had a small flat on the Lower East Side. Oh. You know. whoa, whoa, whoa. What was that like? That, that. <laughs> I have to back up a bit. I have to back up a bit because before I got involved in the peep shows, I had a friend on the street. We used to sell bootleg T-shirts outside concerts. Okay, you down know? by the academy over there, you're talking about? Over there, you know, with the academy, which uh, became the Palladium, it was originally the academy. Right. Uh, actually, Madison Square Garden, there was a lot of money to be made. You could sell all those shirts. Sure. And he was the one that got me my place down the Lower East Side, and I moved in as a squatter. And wow. it was great because uh, was, the rent- Where was that? Was that near CB's in that area? Um, actually, it was not far from Delancey. So, okay. So, that, yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was a completely different area, uh, different neighborhood. That was, Wow. Because I, I played music down and we played Gildersleeves, CB's, Max's. It was yeah. cranking back then. I used to hang out at Gildersleeves and I used to take drum lessons. And my teacher would play Gildersleeves. He would play Max's mm-hmm. and whatever else was out there. We, you know, we would roadie and stuff. Um, and then I really liked studying drums and everything. But there was that other thing that was unresolved. And, 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 and then once I got hired in this place, it's almost like I got sucked in. Because I started hanging out with meeting people, and then we had something like a common thread, you know? Good. And, of course, the culture itself, the culture itself was so vibrant, so invigorating. Correct. correct. You know? So let and, me ask you a question. And, the, yeah. Just to interrupt for a second. So um, what you get? What was the pay? What was the pay like? Oh, the pay was dismal. You're right. Minimum wage. It was wage. just a minimum wage. Right. $4. And I, I still have my pay stubs. $4.25 an hour. $4.25 an hour. As a cashier, you're also required to mop the booths. Um, and you did, and you did that. I, re, I was I was schooled by the best in the business. Um, the thing about Show World, which set it aside from all the other peep shows uh, at the time, which were bordering on uh, contamination, Show World, we even had our own brand of disinfectant, and it was very powerful. You could smell it from right out in the street. It was something that, you know, no matter what, you knew it was clean, right. very clean premises. And, of course, um, the thing about it is these boots, uh, you always find money on the ground in the boots. Right. Find, and whatever you found was yours? 
That's correct. If, if I found like maybe a few dollars in tokens, I could turn them in at the end of the night for money. But the thing about it is the first night of work, I'd made like $5 in tips, which my friend showed me how to do because sometimes this token, it misses the mechanism. It falls down the slot or it falls on the floor. It falls here, there. There was, there was always these little nooks and crannies. You'd find the tokens and it was great. So I went to flame steaks and I ate at flame steaks and I bought a nickel bag and I was so proud of myself, you know? All right. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's amazing. Go ahead. Continue. I mean, you, you're, you're on your way. You're there. You're working. How many days a week? I work six days a week. Yeah. Hours? Night shift? or I work the night shift, um, which I'm lucky I work the night shift because later on, they put me on the second floor. That's where the girls were. That's where the love teams were. Yeah, That's where upstairs, the porno stars were. Right, right. And, and that was a very big deal for me to be up there. And that was like a separate uh, domain. You know, it was like a different right. universe. Yeah, because downstairs were basically the, 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 the booths, right? Well, then downstairs we have what's called the bookstore where we sell the, the yeah. really hardcore fuck books. You know, the right. ones that come right. from Denmark. They right. got this like varnish finish. Yeah. And, and of course, video cassettes were the big sensation coming out at the time. There was VHS and Beta. And then we had the special video cassette for the, the PAL CCAM system from Europe. You know, not everybody had a VCR, but it was it was it was going in that direction. Right. It had the well, the, before that was a Super Eights and Eights, right? With the that's Swedish correct. And those, and those films like. were were very cheaply made, right. and they would constantly break in the booths. You know, they'd have to send the mechanic in there to right. splice it together, and it was yeah. getting really ridiculous until video came along. Yeah. Those you are know? the loops, basically. Yeah, the loops. Right. right. Exactly, right. loops. Eight millimeter. Uh, Super 8, you know, right. um, but there's something classic to that aspect. Oh, no doubt about you know? it. Absolutely. Right. So you, so upstairs was where the action, the live action was going on. Yeah, the, all tell the music was it. coming up. It was like a club up there. Tell, the tell, tell us about boots. that. You go huh? upstairs. Tell, tell us about that. Tell us what that atmosphere was well, like. Well, you know, each, each stair on, on the staircase is illuminated live new girls, live sex acts, you know? So as you're getting up there, you know, you pretty much know um, why you're there, of course. The thing about it is, is that um, it was very exciting, especially uh, around lunchtime and in between shifts, like when, when, when people get out of work. There were so many people uh, swirling about that you had to make them, you know, the cashiers would constantly Make announcements. They were, gentlemen, you must circulate, circulate, move around, take in the show, circulate, live naked ladies, live girls, live sex acts, you know, constantly. And the cashiers were like running all over the place, you know. They were probably stoned out of their minds too. But, you know, there was just a lot of action. It was, you know, it was everything. And, and the girls, you'd, you'd hear the, the door from each booth constantly, you know, constantly shutting and opening and shutting and opening. And on the stage, it was like a feeding frenzy. The customers surrounding the stage where the love teams were. And, and that was pretty much like the graduation point. I graduated to that level. I could work with those people. Of course, if they didn't want me up there, if I wasn't considered to be, uh, you know, cool or whatever, then they would have gotten rid of me right away. You know what I mean? And, and furthermore, I saw somebody that was up there with me and he lost his job, I think for drinking, you know, or something. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to take any chances. So I was very careful as far as the pot. But everybody, all the everybody up there was a pothead. Okay. Was there a camaraderie 
the camaraderie is, is the perfect word for it. Um, we began to bond. First of all, we realized that we're all in the same boat and we liked what we were doing and we liked where we were and we didn't have any place else to go either, right? And then little by little, we found uh, what we had in common. And the main thing, I hate to say it, when it came to marijuana, me and the other cashiers, you know, one cashier would say to me, cover for me, I'm going, I'm going to go into one of the booths and, and, and puff a little bit. Cover for me and then, then I'll cover for you later on. Right. And it was great. Things like that were great because there were so many booths in, in, in Show Follies, which was a satellite of Show World, that you could just go anywhere and just disappear for a little bit. Porter's Closet, you know. I so. used to go back in the Green Door Theater. The Green Door Theater was like a little, a little showcase for porno stars uh, with an open stage in the back of Show Follies. And I would go back there and I would smoke there, you know. And um, it was cool, you know. Um, my friend, um, the manager, she was Jamaican. And she had a very loyal crew. The girls were very loyal to her. And, and we just liked, uh, we became friends, you know. I was friends with her on Patella. She passed. I miss her a lot. I miss a lot of them because we became, it's, you know, to be accepted. The most important thing about working in these places is the sense of belonging. It instills in you to feel accepted when you feel like an outcast society. I didn't make it into college, you see. I felt this, this albatross. And, and it was unbearable to me. The only way I could snuff out that sorrow from letting my dad down and my family, all this stuff, was I had to be in a place where I had to nullify my senses to an extent, you know? And so um, I would not trade it for anything. You know, it was at that period in time where Times Square, it was just drenched in meaning. Oh, for sure. No? For sure, for sure. So the fan, you know, you, 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 did you become friends with any of the people there that you worked with? I, were you day-to-day -day friends with them? Did you go out with them outside of uh, working? Well, my friend Suki was half Japanese and half black. And I, I, I connected with her because I'm half Filipino. And my, and my mom was a Connecticut Yankee, very proud. I really connected with her. We became very close friends. And uh, we used to hang out. And then some of the other girls, I would hang out with them. And I was just amazed at this type of network that they had. Wherever they could go, they could just basically get whatever they wanted. It was kind of like, I would, I would call it hustling to an extent, but they didn't have to hardly do anything. It was almost as if everybody would just fall over because they were just so gorgeous, you know? And, and sure. they would go to a club and they would just say something and, and they would just let them in. You know what I mean? Of course. So I liked hanging out with them. And they, they let me to hang out with them, you see? So I figured that was, they liked me. Of course, if they didn't like me, I wouldn't have been hanging out with them. Absolutely, know? absolutely. And, and I like that. I like that a lot. And we were friends for a very, very, very long time. You know. And these girls, by the way, these girls I'm mentioning, like Joy, who was Jamaican, and Suki, they were the first girls that started in the business. In fact, Joy and Suki were the very first girls to dance at Peepland when it opened in 1978. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So how long did you, did you, uh, are they still around? Are you in touch with them <laughs> now? And um, what, what are they doing? How, how, what, what, what happened to them? If anything, well, this is the thing. Um, a lot of them worked in a lot of different places that you probably never even heard of. I mean, at the time there were just so many, not just peep shows, 
there were topless bars. There Correct. Were meat right. Um, there are places like the Horses Rail. Uh, the Horses Rail, I'm sure you know who owned it, probably. Um, it was owned by Maddie the Horse. And he owned a lot of clubs, a lot of bars. Mr. Ionella to you. Yes, yes. Correct. And that was down, it was actually down the block from a very, uh, very famous uh, club he had called the New Peppermint Lounge. So I think, I think the New Peppermint Lounge, I think the Mardi Gras, and I think Umberto's Clam House are probably the three most prominent um, places that he was the owner of. But getting back to what I was saying, there were these places and, and there were just so many of them that a girl could go from one place to the other. You could always go from hop around. It was and a circuit. Was circuit. Money. Yeah, there was a circuit. There was a total circuit. And, and um, well, like I said, some of these places were new clubs. They were totally, the girls were new, but they didn't have any, there was no liquor. And some of them were topless bars. And then there were the peep shows, of course. The best peep shows were the ones owned by Richie. They were very clean. No. Right. They were, they were, they were kept, they were kept up. Yeah. A friend of mine, actually, I told you, I think a friend of mine worked up at La Sex Shop. Uh, right. At 227. So the yeah. That was on West 42nd. And then I think he did, he said he worked for three or four months at, um, at Show World, but I think it was prior to you. It was a couple of years before you did. Um, what was the, what was the, the quote unquote, the mafia's uh, interest in, that you saw. I, we all know that it was owned and run, but the whole underworld was run. But did you actually see and watch things change hands and 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 guys coming and going as you like a, almost like a fly on the wall? Not as far as uh, uh, mobsters. Or once in a while, maybe, but they had managers under them. They're like. When you have this thing or whatever it is, the mafia and, and these families, you know, they have umbrellas underneath them. Yeah, guys are working. Guys, guys are so, they're underneath working, right? And those guys are pretty much just like you and me. You know, right. we go to work and everything, and we're not making like a great deal of money or anything unless we're doing something on the side, you know? But the fact remains, um, this is the most important thing I, I would have to think that influenced me heavily was the fact that they paid me. They paid me on time, you know? Sometimes they even gave bonuses. Interesting. It was, it was a big deal, you know? And of course, if they accepted you, then if you went to work for some other place, you said, I just worked, I worked over here for Richie, you would get work immediately. So, right. you know. You're in, was, you, um, were, you were in the in crowd. Yeah, because I handled money as a cashier and that allowed me to go work in the topless bars, the new clubs as a cashier, which is more involved actually. You do credit cards and all that stuff, you know, and you pay the girls. Right. And, and of course, usually, you know, somebody that handles money, you trust know, that, issue. Very, Better, yeah. Trusted. Trusted. Yeah. Right. Tell me about uh, Mama Santana. Oh. Well, her um, she was half uh, Italian, half Puerto Rican. And she was a former... Um, she had quite a following, I think, in her day. Because I saw her scrapbook and pictures of her where she really looked dynamite. Um, in burlesque, of course. And um, I can't tell you when she actually got involved in pornography per se, but I could tell you that she had a lot of influence. And, and the thing about it was she had cultivated this, um, you know, there are a lot of people, I don't know how to put it, but we weren't like raving beauties. You know what I mean? 
We're more like glamorous vagabonds, if you want to know. <laughs> we were homeless, okay? So I'm living in the Port Authority, but she wouldn't deny them work, even if you came in and you reeked a bad B.O. She would figure out, well, she'd probably hose you down or something and, right. and put you on stage, you know? I can tell you a short story that I didn't, I don't know if I wrote about it in my book or not. I'll have to check. But there was this one couple, you know, in the basement, we had love teams and the basement stage was connected to the dressing room. So you could just go from the dressing room to the stage. And there was this one couple that were like bodybuilders, you know? Um, and, uh, and then they disappeared. But then the next day they came, next time they came in, the fellow who was a bodybuilder, his wife was a bodybuilder too, but the fellow, he was in a wheelchair and he was like reduced to being a vegetable. So I was like, what the fuck is this? What happened to him? Before I seen him, he was like, you know, Mr. Universe, and now he's a vegetable. It turned out he had mixed steroids and free base and it did something to him and he became like that. So Santana gave them a booking anyway because the only part of his body that worked was his dick. Wow. Because as long as his dick works, I'll give him work. So the girl, <laughs> the girl has to pick him up out of the wheelchair and carry him to the stage to do a fucking live sex show. It's not that not, And That's bizarre design. things like this would That's happen bizarre. all the time. Right. All the time. That's the reason why we ran to work, as Joy would say, because I didn't want to miss anything. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's just, there's these things that are unimaginable always happening. Right. All the FOMO, before you, FOMO before it was FOMO. The yeah. fear of missing out before it was actually the fear of you are missing out. Well, any uh, any famous people back then that you came in contact with was anybody uh, anybody come to mind that uh, you know was maybe main? How about mainstream star that came through? Okay, um, I was Sorry. writing about it the other day. There was this famous comedian. Well, he wasn't. He was like, he was on the brink of fame, and he was brilliant. He was a brilliant comedian and actor. Um. In fact, he had done two stints in Miami Vice. And then he was about, he was auditioning for Saturday Night Live and they were going to give it to him, but they didn't. They didn't. The other, the other problem was, his name was Charlie Barnett. I don't know if you remember him, he used to do perform shows in Washington Square Park and he would have throngs of people throwing money at him. And it's the most amazing show right there in Washington Square Park. Did you say Charlie Barnett? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Remember him? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. He was in a couple flicks, I think like DC cab or, or this and that, but the reason he didn't get Saturday night live and the reason he had problems on Miami Vice, well, it didn't affect the performance. The thing is he couldn't read and write, but he could remember it if you read the script. To him. So, you know, he was brilliant on Miami Vice and then that paved the way for Saturday night live, but they, uh, they didn't give him the job because he couldn't read and write. But the thing that connects that to show world, he used to go into the show world booths and he put this in his act where he would smoke his crack in the show world booth, <laughs> right? You know, with the, the glass pipe and that fucking, fucking funny little, uh, what is it, a torch or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christ. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, that white yeah. smoke comes out of there, right? That's great. So he says one of the cashiers, you know, mopping the booths, opened the door and caught him smoking crack. And the, and the cashier said, Charlie Barnett, he goes, what is that, a doggy film you're watching? You know, oh, something geez. like that. So it wasn't uh, the crack. It was the crack. Right. He was watching a, a, film, a, a film from Denmark with a woman and a dog. He's, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that'll so that's do it. That was part of his show. That'll yeah. do it. That'll do it. 
that, so that's, that's that was one that just came to mind. He was almost famous, you could say. That's a classic. Yeah. How about um, who was your favorite? Who was one of your favorites in terms of the talent? Which talent? You know, uh, people that actually it was any of your favorites uh, that uh, any of the porn stars back then, any of the live the people from live shows. Well, on the website, Samantha I Fox, I know Maylin. Wrote about a, her. Believe right. me, I tried to bring that to life because that was very important that day to me. Um, because you know, cashier sometimes, you know, mopping the booths, a little sweaty, right? You know, dunkarees. You know what I mean? Grubby coins and all this, right? But but she, it was it was very strange, and, and um, I'll never forget that because we, they didn't treat us any different. Even the porno stars, strangely enough, they did not look down upon us. They didn't treat us any different. We were all the same. Part of the team. Yeah. In yeah. fact. I went out to smoke a joint once outside the 7-Eleven, and 7-Eleven was located, well, that fucking block, forget about it. You had uh, Fantasy Twin Theaters, which used to be a Spanish theater right next door, and next door to that was the doll, of course, the doll, and then upstairs, the satin ballroom, forget about it, right? I mean, it was like, you know, and then around the corner, 48th Street, all the mu music stores, you know, it was the best right. place to be. I loved that block, even more than I like, you know, right. 8th Absolutely. Avenue and everything. Absolutely. But anyway... I went out and they had stanchions near the theater and all these people and they had a red carpet and then, and then Tiffany Clark and Fred Lincoln get out of the limousine. So I had met Tiffany and, and she had gave me her t-shirt. So I was just standing over there, you know, minding my business because what the fuck do they want to do with me? I'm nobody. And Tiffany is going in and then she turns around and she looks at me and she goes, come on. I go, what? Come with us. Really? You're kidding me, right? So I, I picked up a stanchion, and I went in with them. It was it was such a nice thing for them to do. So yeah. um, years go by, and you're you wanted to you got the idea of putting together um, showworldlegacy.com. A uh, tell us tell us about Showworld because that because it's happening now. <laughs> And it's available, by the way, there'll be a description below, of course, with everything that uh, yeah. the Pete man is talking about. And then some, I've checked it out. I, I, it, it's, it's so informative. And even your, uh, your IG posts are, are, are very, very informative. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, uh, you really get a lot. It's almost like I, like I see it and I'm like, don't, don't, tell, don't tell too much here. You know, get them to go to the site. But I'm, that's yeah. why I really wanted to, I'm so happy that we uh, actually are getting to talk. So tell yeah, us about the, tell us about the project of showworldlegacy.com. Well, initially it began like this. Um, my friend John Colasante, who was a former Showworld boss, we called them bosses. They were the uh, managers under Richie. Richie was the real boss. Um, when we became friends, if we ever get on the phone, we meet. All we do is just talk about the way things were back then, mm -hmm. and 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 he'll tell me something. And will trigger a memory that's long buried. And then I'll tell him something. It will trigger these floods of fucking memories. Right. So I was like, you know, I'd written the book already, but I wanted to take it to another level. And this was long before the pandemic. I, I really wanted to put something together. And, and then I found this really, really talented um, designer. You know? So, so I had a little money saved. And I wanted to create something that was really not just informative, but really educational as to... Um, espousing really what we were about, you know, because there are a lot of misconceptions, a lot of things that are misconstrued as to the kind of people we were. We, we were pretty much normal people. You know, we're hardworking people. 
and some of us had families. You know, um, a friend of mine who was actually a porno star, he, he said, what do they think? They think we're deviants, you know? They, people think all kinds of things, but they never went into show world, and they don't know that we know how to laugh and tell jokes like everybody else. It's just Absolutely. that we laugh, at, we laugh at different things. Of course, of course. <laughs> I, I, no, no, not even really. I mean, it's, it, it's just a different, it's, you know, listen, it wasn't really <laughs> accepted back then, although it was, you know, it, it, it was uh, sensationalized quite a bit back then, you know, compared to now. Now it's, now it's, it, it, it's out in front of everybody. Uh, it's, it's not, I don't know if it's accepted per se, but everybody's, it, it's quite a bit, it's rampant and, and easily accessible, of course, because of the internet. But back then it was a little more of an underground, which, um, you know, that's interesting. I mean, but yeah, you regular folk. I mean, uh, no, how could you not be? And so therefore the site was based upon the fact that I feel that in our experience, we could impart antidotes, snippets of uh, slipstreams, perhaps, of stories that people could relate to, possibly, and, and being that we were in a different, you could say a different dimension that existed, you know, a subculture, it doesn't mean that we didn't have, go through the things everybody else does, and yet, we found ourselves, for whatever reason, we were making the best of the situation, you know, so it's pretty much to dispel all these, you know, whatever people have thought, I figure we, we, could, we could set the uh, record straight. And, and therefore, I knew the only way to do this, it, it had to be photo-driven. I was going to write all the text, and then John was going to tell me stories. But we would hope, praying, that other people that we'd known would come forward with pictures and stories, too. Have you know? they? Um, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, we're, we're, re we're going to restructure the site, so... It, it maybe it will be less intimidating and then people will start leaving comments. So in which case there's a lot of things when you have a website, you have to constantly update it and rearrange things, you know, and, and see what works and what doesn't work. What does work is the fact that we've had a lot of user engagement. Um, it took us forever to get the soundtrack to not click off when you click on a tab, but, and to make the marquee, all the lights okay. back and forth, but we wanted to create like an experience of course, to of course. show her, you know, as best as we can. And from what I've heard, it's, a, it's become a great source of therapy, therapy to people that never even experienced show world. They like it. They like what it was about. They wish they could have been there. And that's, that's if I'm, I think I'm succeeding as far as uh, what we set out to do when I hear things like that. You know? Absolutely. Uh, no, I think it's, I, I think it's of interest for sure. Yeah. And uh, obviously, you know, um, the Rialto report as well is, is, and it's, oh, there's, completely, there's, and it's completely different, completely different side. There's something mm -hmm. on me. I, I have a, I don't know what you would call a slot or a chapter or whatever on there. But when I did that, you know, um, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm saying there's a lot of things about that site, which uh, are, are, are decent or pretty good for the most part. But what we have, which show our legacy is completely different. Completely different. It, it, yeah, absolutely. Not, it, it's, but it just happens to be in the same genre. Yeah, because of the golden age, yeah. but it's uh, it's really more. Also, it's it, it's New York, you know, and that's something that you know you you've, you've really captured. Well, I'm 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 very pleased to hear that. I'm I'm glad that you like it. Oh, I love you it. I love it. Like it, and and that's enough for us to continue because I have a lot of things I, I want to um, 
we want to develop. And, and of course, the most important thing is um, to keep it going and to collect more materials, you know, and of course the stories. I mean, I have tons of stories and I can, I can always, but to have other people's stories is even more important if they come forward and especially to know who's out there that, that's still alive, you know, because of, in fact, another, another very integral part of the site was, was the site was really created as a tribute to our fallen girls, our poor girls. A lot of them were nomadic and they were self-destructive. Sure. And a lot of them uh, met their demise in ways that were really, truly horrific. And I'm telling you, I was there. I was there after the girl was murdered. I was there, worked with a girl that was killed by the serial killer, Joel Rifkin. I mean, they found her in his station wagon decomposed and wow. he'd already killed 200 women on the Lower East Side. You know, it, it just, there had to be someone to, to say, all right, they were part of this too and they mattered. And that's the thing about it. It didn't matter who you were when you worked in show or for some strange reason you mattered and you felt that you mattered. It's very weird. You know, you could be the porter, you could be the mop man, you could be the cashier, you could be the porno song or the booth baby or the love team. You mattered. And we were doing, you know, it may not have been your career choice. Like, the, you know, your guidance counselor in high school says, well, <laughs> you know, what do you want to do, son? Um, I want to do love teams. I want to do live sex action show. What? <laughs> right. So the question, did you ever, did you ever perform? Were you ever, yeah. you did? How did, how, how did that how did that just stepping back into that or from away from it how did that actually uh, evolve well you know i noticed that there were the other people i was working with they had a 40 minute break every hour they'd be in the dressing room hanging out mm -hmm. and, and of course they were the love teams so it was like and then i noticed that uh, they were all we were all of a similar sim, similar age you know, and then I heard stories like my uh, a fellow who was doing love teams. He was doing a lot of shows um, and he was formerly a cashier, but then he graduated to live sexual. Performance. Was he making money? Was he making a lot? Were, were they making? I know they're making better money than the cashiers, but were they making real money at the time? Well, OK, let's go back to 1982, right? 83. Um, I was making 425 an hour as a cashier. But if you if you do love teams, you only work 20 minutes an hour, 20 minute show, and you make eight dollars a show. Eight dollars really? a show. So to really? do eight shows a day, you make sixty-four dollars a day. But if you work the open open theater, like the Triple Tree Theater or the Green Door Theater, that's an open stage. There's no booths. No, the regular uh, where you could just go in and watch the real thing. Show. You make ten dollars. The man makes and the girl makes ten too. The thing about it is, this is how it really works. If you have a girl, okay, and she works the booth, and then she does live sex shows, that makes a lot of money working the booth as well. Okay, you're in already because if she, you know, it can't be the other way that she doesn't want to work the booth. She has to work the booth. Yeah, it's part of it, right? So you're just, you know, you you do the the show with her. But I I seen that there were a lot of um, and they were young, and then. Well, you know, one of the girls, because I handle money, I guess because I handle money, they, they felt they could trust me. But she approached me about it, you know, and, and I, want, I, I was turned on to her, so I went for it, you know. And, and initially, of course, it's kind of scary. <coughs> However, 
the fact that I wanted, I wanted the sex so bad that I, I completely forgot about that other stuff because, you know, you get up there and all you do is focus on her and sure. that's the most important thing. But then after a full day, eight shows of that full day, that's it. It was like you were doing it your whole life. So it became, <laughs> it was nothing. The window's going up and down. It was like being in something that Rod Serling created. The windows <laughs> up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and Michael Jackson playing Beat It, round the clock, Beat It, Beat It. Right, right, right. Heard, beat it, I started to take my clothes off. It's like Pavlov's dog. I, yeah, I was, yeah, exactly. Behavioral, behavioral. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. So, and then all of a sudden, it was part being part of this different clique. See, the love teams, you know? Who were they? And, and they were, most of them were into the drugs, obviously. Sure. And they sure. were drug dealers, too, you right. know? Right. So, were they New Yorkers or from all over? They were New Yorkers. They were from good neighborhoods. They were from bad neighborhoods. They were from Jersey. You know, they had some couples that were really daredevils, you could say. Um, and and there were there were couples that were clean, and there were couples that were disheveled. You know, um, some of the couples used to fight on stage, even. You know, right? It's like yeah, it's yeah, a token, yeah. and you expect lovemaking, not not a couple hit, you know hitting each other. All right. <laughs> In fact, that was my friend Lefty and Sassy. They used to fight on stage. Yeah, my friend Lefty. Well, Lefty and Sassy, they were a salt and pepper team, they call it. You see, customers, now th this is what we found out, because when they tally the tokens in each booth that surrounds a People Live stage, there's 18 booths. At the end of the night, right, they tally all the tokens. And if they see on the sheet that this one love team is doing better than the others, obviously they're going to tell the manager to give them more bookings because it course. makes us more money. Of course. But it, apparently... Customers all over Richie's places, they love two types of love teams the most. A male, female, salt and pepper team, black and white. Of course. And lesbian, lesbian teams. Yeah, that and that's would, it. Yeah. That's the most right. amount of money, they're the one, that's what customers like to see. Right, right. Okay. So that, that's a very important case in point, who was getting the bookings. <laughs> you know? Because Lefty never did anything. He would just lie there on stage. He had these fatigues, like army fatigues. He would just pull, the, he never even took off, he pulled down his pants and Sassy would blow him and he would be reading a book. It's not exactly the greatest show you ever saw, but Sassy was like the farmer's daughter type, you know what I mean? Right, so, right, right. You know, he wouldn't have been able to get bookings if not for her, you see. So, you know, yeah. And a lot, in most cases, let me tell you, it was the woman supporting the man, okay? Because he was oh, incapable sure. of getting a job sure. of anywhere in society, you know. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So how, how, when, when did it, when did it end for you? When did it end in terms of, uh, did it, end, uh, for you and when did you kind of move on and, and then we'll kind of circle back to the, uh, you no, know, in a way you don't ever want it to end, but the thing about it is as many, as much as you could say, well, it, it was exhilarating the shows with this girl and then you had to get another partner, you know, and then, then, then a lot of bad things would creep up especially if you develop feelings for that girl, but that girl is not the type is, is a girl that doesn't have those kind of feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about sex for some of the love teams. They were actually couples or in yeah, they were, they were working, they were couples and this is a way to make for them to make money, pay the rent. Right. Yeah. And then a lot of girls, when they're not, when they're not working, they're in the street, you know, you really can't impose 
your will on them or, or change their nature because that's pretty much who they are. But at the time I, I wasn't, I, I thought that maybe that would change, but things like that really don't change. You know, the thing about it is everybody says, how come these girls are so gorgeous and yet they, they have such low self-esteem. And that's the thing most people don't know. You see, how come they choose a pimp over like a guy who's, you know, successful and, you know, doesn't hurt anybody. You know what I mean? But they do. And, and you see this over and over and pretty much, you know, there are always exceptions, of course. But the fact remains, you know, two years after I stopped with the shows, for, for whatever reason, there were no more shows anyway because of the health crisis, you see. So they, they stopped that. Right. That's after 1987. And that was it. But it went on for years and years, of course. You know, the, the live sex show. Oh, for sure. sure. You know, they, I remember there was a couple that worked and they went on the David Susskind show. You remember that show, David Susskind? Of course I remember the talk they, show. Course. Yeah, they went on, and this guy Russell, I remember, uh, black guy, and his girl, they did a lot of shows, and, 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 and he was espousing, well, what a great, you know, we educate people and all this, you know, and it, it was just interesting, because back in New York back then, there were just so many, you know, as opposed to now, because the countercultures, you see, they invigorated New York as well, you used to have that, uh, the choice, you know, to see whatever you wanted. You could see a Broadway show and then see a peep show, right? I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and of course, uh, there was this one couple that they did a lot of shows. Uh, and it was Tom and Donna. And they were from Jersey. They were a white couple. They did a lot of shows. Open. They didn't care. They, they worked around the clock. But the one man who did the most shows, his name was Willie. And I will refer to him as the Puerto Rican Fred Flintstone. The reason is because one time I seen him down, coming down the street and he, it was like a cave couple, him and his girl. Because <laughs> her, mouth, her mouth was lacerated from giving so many blowjobs, you know, and, and he was doing 24 shows a day and they had to be hardcore shows, no simulations. He refused to do a simulated show. Right. He's, so he was one out. He was one out, huh? It had to be hardcore all the time. Well, he, he had a big debt with the mafia, actually. Uh, you know, uh. he, with a friend of ours who was a loan shark, he owed him a lot of money, but he, he was willing to work for it. Whereas the other ones, you know, they were falling apart. Willie wasn't a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. What I couldn't understand is how he could drink Bacardi straight and go on stage with people like Samantha Fox or Tish Ambrose and, and achieve an erection. It was just amazing to me. It was just, shocking. But he Superman. believed in it so much. It was like... It was like um, uh, the, the defining moment for him, you know. Is Willie still alive, you think? Is he still alive? Well, when, when I, I ran into him once, and he had snapshots of everybody. In fact, I still have the snapshot he took of me with a girl on stage. That's great. And he, had, he went to work for Verizon. <laughs> all right? But he said, I, I offered to buy his snapshot book, and he wouldn't sell it to me. Right. I, I wish he would have sold it to me. Willie, where are you? I mean, if anybody knows where Willie is, please get in touch. Don't take a Puerto Rican like Flintstone comment. Uh, no, no, no. Everything. No, absolutely. With love. Everything's a term of endearment. But he was uh, more like Barney Rubble anyway. Yeah, Willie, if you're out there, if you're out there, get in touch with showworldlegacy.com, please. <coughs> but please. actually, there was another fellow, the last love team I'm going to tell you about. All right. This couple, um, their names were Bullwhip and Peaches. And when I worked with Snow, 
and a picture of Snow is on our site. She she passed away. She was a very nice person. I worked with her. Um, we we're like friends, you know. But anyway, I come on the stage now. Bullwhip had a seventeen-inch dick, and his show consisted of him. He would swing it like a bat, like he's up for playing baseball. Right. And he would just chase her around the stage with it. That's all he ever did. Just chase her. And she would go, help, help, like a damsel in distress. Help, help. And he would go, break out with the preparation H. All right. You know, and he would just, you know. And and she was a seamstress. So she had to create special pants so his dick could go down the side of his. It didn't right. get in the way or whatever, you know. But they were a very nice couple. And he had pictures of everybody. He had pictures of me, Snow, Pebbles. Uh, I would die to have that picture of me, Snow, and Pebbles together. Pebbles is another girl we knew. I would die to have that picture of me. Beautiful. That's amazing. Was, you know, and then they just disappeared, and that was it. Where did they go? Who knows? Right. That's a great question. Where did they go? Where are they now? Uh, that's something you know that the the site that would be great for the site to. They weren't on HBO. I'll tell you that much. Okay. Yeah, I know that. I know that. No, that's that, that show business. For that. I was yeah, uh, that's show business. Absolutely. So uh, what's coming up yeah. for showworldlegacy.com? Tell us what's what we need to look forward to. Again, we're going to put everything in the descriptions below. And um, I'm hoping that we can get to speak, you know, in in, uh, in the future as well to see well, what's well, going on. But what's <laughs> happened? Tell, tell us what's what's coming up well, and what, what we need to look forward to. We're always going to make revisions and we're always going to try to improve upon it in such a way where, where um, it's irresistible, of course, just like our live new girls in the peep shows. You know, it was kind of like if you worked in the Times Square area back then, if you were a businessman or whatever, whatever you did in Times Square area, it was a tradition in Times Square because people especially in the neighborhood, they put their showgirls on pedestals, you know, they worship them. Absolutely. And, and especially at lunchtime <laughs> and after work. All right. And, and, you know, um, it was one of those beautiful things. So we're going to have more tributes to girls, more stories about the girls and more pictures until we run out. And then I'm going to do even more to encourage those to come forward to tell, uh, for example, when I told you the story about that porno theater I went to, certain things like this, you know, how it affected our development, maybe. That's um, great. Did, did, what, what did I come from a family? Did religion have anything to do with it, you know? Okay. Or, or my cultural background? And, and I would really appreciate disclosures of that nature because we want to create that connection, you know? And then I'll respond in a way, and hopefully you can get that ball rolling for people to expose a little bit more. You know, um, I want it to be a forum for things. In fact, the forum is called Show World Prophecy about how people came into this business, but they actually went on to other walks of life, but it didn't, it didn't ruin them. Or anything. If anything, it may have given them a better understanding, you know, which is, which is opposed, of course, to everything that people have said about us for, for years and years. Correct. All right. Correct. You know, Absolutely. a lot of us, uh, well, this is the thing about it. Um, I, I would hope that the site, um, with, with certain, um, additional taps. And of course, this is another thing we're developing. We want to uh, reach out to some of those, those porn stars, the original ones, 
You know, we want some stories about show world. I don't care if they're good or bad stories. It's just whatever they have to say and then where they might be now and what they've done. But they still have that as part of what they were, you see. Right, so correct. they're not in denial about it. I hope other people aren't either. And uh, I come clean about it. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for those experiences because it did have something to, it did enhance my development, you know, in, in different ways. I may have gotten hurt and this and that, but still, those, that's what stories, great stories that somebody has to get hurt, you know? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Well said. On that note, uh, I just want to say absolute pleasure. Uh, oh, my pleasure. My speaking pleasure. with you, this was Pete Man 1605. Uh, world, com is the site. We're going to yeah. put all the information down in the bottom of the description, as well as a way to contact uh, the Pete Man uh, with if you have some stories, if you frequented, if you have anything, people that you know that were working back then. He would love to hear from you. And uh, I'm. I, I'm excited uh, that well, you're doing this. want to hear your stories too, by the way. Your That's story. right. You want to hear? Absolutely. Absolutely. Got to say shout out to my boy, Javier, who's uh, going to hopefully watch that. Watch <laughs> this. Uh, and um, yeah, I want to say thank you once again. Stay well. Good to see you. You look thank great. You I hope you're pleasure. feeling all right. And uh, we're gonna, we'll, uh, we'll touch base real soon. So take care of yourself. Peace. You too.